Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Most of our coping mechanisms are absolutely counterproductive to what our body actually needs. Learning to heal is not a magic bullet, but it is learning about being still. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm without my friendly co-host Mary Beth West today. She is actually in Croatia, where she attended the Pro PR Conference last week and was one of 13 recipients of the Golden World Contribution Award for her body of work and her significant commitment and contribution to the public relations and communications industry. So congratulations, Mary Beth. Very well deserved. I look forward to you getting back and catching up with you next week in Miami at the Association for Measurement and Evaluation and Communications Conference, which is a global conference. It's in the U.S. this year, so we decided to go, and we're looking forward to learning about all the new tools and discussion on what's going on with measurement in our industry as it gets more and more sophisticated. But today, we are not going to be sophisticated with measurement and evaluation in communication, but we're going to talk about measurement and evaluation of your mental health. It impacts everything we do, and, and I think as communicators and marketing and PR professionals, we do have stressful jobs. I was pleasantly surprised when I went and Googled the most stressful jobs in America that PR and crisis management has fallen off the top 10 list. We used to be right up there with firefighters and air traffic controllers, but I guess the pandemic and everything that's going on in the world has uh, knocked us out of that running, which is a good thing. But May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and so I thought it's a good time to circle back on this topic. We talk about it quite a bit because personally, I've struggled with anxiety and depression for most of my adult life. I'm an overachiever. I'm type A all the way. I have a hard time relaxing. And I think a lot of you who work in communications will agree, especially in the agency setting where you're juggling multiple clients at the same time, or if you have a crisis pop up or you've got something that comes up at night or on a weekend, the stress can vary based on the day and the circumstances. It's never a dull moment in our industry. Um, I'm really concerning lately. I'd say over the past even five years, even pre-pandemic, I was noticing more and more people who were willing to talk about their mental health struggles. And then in 2021, I was completely blown away when the American Academy of Pediatrics declared a mental health emergency for children and adolescents in the United States, and that we are facing an unprecedented mental health crisis among people of all ages. Two out of five adults have reported symptoms of anxiety and depression over the past year, Black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted, and just the grief and trauma and physical isolation of the past several years have driven Americans to a breaking point. My guest today is friend and coach Booth Andrews with the Knoxville, Tennessee-based company, the Booth Andrews Company. We've known each other for probably about 10 years now, and from the outside looking in to me, even before I met Booth, and I knew who she was because, you know, she's a big deal in our community. And from the outside looking in, you know, Booth had it all. She was a successful attorney. And at the age of only 40, she was the CEO of a $5 million nonprofit, a mom of three, a community leader, a triathlete. There was just nothing that she couldn't do. And then just a few years later, she was unemployed, broke, divorced, 
severely ill, separated from the community. She had been clinically depressed and anxious, battling PTSD. And this is straight from her website, so I think I can say it. She self-medicating with compulsive spending, wine, coffee, more wine, more coffee, and uh, surviving only with the assistance of prescribed antidepressants, anti-anxiety, and sleep meds. And she went through that for three years before she hit her breaking point. And so she's been gracious enough to join us today and talk about her journey. And Booth, welcome to Misinterpreted. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're, you know, I must say out of all the professional women I know, you really inspire me. And on this podcast, one of the reasons we set out to produce it was to talk about, to talk about hard subjects. And that's why it's called misinterpreted public relations demystified. It should just be kind of misinterpreted life demystified because we talk (laughs) about so many different things and what myths there are surrounding mental health and what we all project out there to the world that isn't always the reality of where we are in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And so I would love if you would share your story with our audience. Sure. You aren't the only person who thought that I had it all together. If any of you had met me 12 years ago, I would have told you I was a superhero. I really believed that about myself. What people didn't know about me then was that I was actually a childhood trauma survivor. I had been physically and emotionally abused for most of my childhood. My parents were physically and emotionally absent most of the time, and I was not protected. I was abused by an in-home caregiver who lived with us until from before I was born until I was 15 years old when she entered treatment for alcoholism. And my senior year in high school, I was very likely depressed, but didn't really know what depression was. I just knew that I was felt like I was coming apart at the seams. I was likely depressed when I got to college. And then I found leadership purely by accident. Um, I tell the story that after the pledge retreat, my pledge trainer looked at me, I pledged a traditional Greek sorority, and my pledge trainer looked at me and said, we think you can be a leader. And the next thing I knew, I was pledge class president. And being a leader made me feel valuable. It made me feel like I had something to contribute. It made me feel like I had some measure of control over my life. And I was a leader throughout college, president of my sorority, active in student government, ran, actually when I was in law school, ran to be appointed to the board of trustees for our state university. And Translated that, you know, graduated law school, started working for a startup property management company. And for 10 years, I gave that company my heart and soul. That included working 60 to 70 hours a week. It included, I actually carried a pager for five years because I was on call for property management emergencies all the time. Even if I took a vacation, I had to check my voicemail at least once a day. And so I'm, I'm sure some of the PR folks can can relate to that. Oh, yeah. I just got back from a trip and uh, <laughs> yeah. never have been on a trip without my laptop. No, you, you just could not, was not permitted to fully unplug. And if I went on vacation, I remember it would take me, you know, three or four days to completely unwind. I'd maybe be relaxed about middle of the week. And then by Friday, I'd start amping back up again. I reworked myself out of that job in the summer of 2008. By that time, I had two children. 
I took really, I did take a maternity leave with my first child. With my second child, I ended up in preterm labor at 30 weeks pregnant, uh, was put on bed rest and was working two weeks after delivering my wow. second child, was working from home. Um, reworked myself out of that job in the summer of 2008, right before the bottom dropped out of the real estate market. And by the time I left that job, I'd been running a $3 million division of the company. So in my spare time, I decided to, in addition to trying to figure out what I wanted to be next, I decided to start training for a triathlon to raise money for cancer research in honor of my mother, who was, who actually lived with chronic lymphocytic leukemia and then lymphoma for 13 years before she passed away. And I ultimately landed as the CEO of a regional nonprofit that was created out of merger. It was a $5 million organization with three offices serving parts of Tennessee, Virginia, and Georgia. And I got pregnant with my third child while I was there, went into preterm labor at 28 weeks pregnant. Oh my gosh. And was on bed rest again for um, until I hit 37 weeks running a strategic planning process from home with a relatively new team. And all during this time, I was having chronic infections. Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with endometriosis. I had surgery for endometriosis. I had chronic sinus infections. I had sinus surgery. So there were some signs really relatively early into my career that I probably had some hormonal imbalances, some inflammation issues. And then my mother's cancer diagnosis changed to imminently terminal. So as, as I said, she'd been living for, with cancer for a long time. When my son was six months old, her diagnosis changed. And I suddenly had this feeling like my carefully curated life was built on quicksand. Yeah. And I had this distinct image of like Pandora's box and there was, I didn't know what was in the box, but I was certain that if the lid came off the box, I wasn't going to be able to put it back together. And I didn't even really understand what that meant then. That's actually when I started having anxiety attacks. Mm -hmm. I did not know what they were, but it just felt like there were bricks on my chest. So that was 2011, 2012, started having anxiety attacks started trading for another triathlon to raise money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And in March of, or I'm sorry, May of 2012, just a couple of weeks after mom died, I completed that triathlon while on antibiotics for bronchitis. And I left that event and went to a girl event for the organization I was running. I gave a speech. I did photo ops with dozens of parents and girls and I think it was three months, no, within two months, the depression hit. It was a combination of, you know, in hindsight, it was a combination of having, you know, run on adrenaline for years. You know, my immune system, the fall after my mother passed away, I at one point I had four infections at the same time. And I actually started taking antidepressant in August of 2012, the same day I completed another triathlon. So I ended up in therapy. I finally reached out for therapy um, in fall, in October of 2012. And at the time, and I think you will relate to this again, and PR professionals will as well, I was embarrassed. I felt yes. like I had used my mind as my primary coping skill for my entire life. 
And I remember wondering what good I was to anyone if I lost my mind. And I remember slinking into the therapist waiting room, hoping no one would see me. Yes. Really as a, as a semi-public figure in a small community, afraid that people would question my judgment, afraid what people would think. Again, did not understand mental health, did not understand burnout, did not understand what was happening to me. I just knew that I was afraid. And I finally landed in a psychiatrist's office. And I remember two things she told me. One was that trauma changes the brain, particularly if it happens while your brain is developing. And two, that if I didn't start to sleep, they weren't going to be able to help me. Right. So that's when I ended up on medication to help me sleep and medication for depression and anxiety. So this is fall of 2012. At this point, we are leading massive change efforts at the organization I'm running. Strategic and cultural transformation, total operational overhaul. I'm being asked to speak at our national conferences and lead um, conversations among my peers. I'm being asked to sit on strategic planning, um, board, you know, conversations for the movement as a whole. And the only things that I did differently was that I was going to therapy and was taking my medication and I was sleeping. It never occurred to me to ask for help outside of that. It never occurred to me. I just thought I was supposed to just keep piling everything on the plate and keep going. It just so happened I had to go to therapy. <laughs> and it yeah. just so happened that maybe I had an anxiety attack before that really important board meeting and had to take a Xanax. Um, but I didn't adjust any of the expectations that I had for myself and how I would show up in the world. And I can tell you now that that did not go well. My health continued to decline. My doctor started looking for an immune deficiency to see if they could figure out why I kept getting infection after infection after infection. And what I now understand is that when your body is exposed to stress hormones over prolonged periods, it affects your digestive system, your immune system, your endocrine system, even the myelin cheese around your nerves start to break down. And that was what was happening to me. So by the spring of 2015, after, you know, really actively struggling with my mental health and having had suicidal ideation off and on since 2012, I actually made a plan to take my own life in March of 2015. I never knew that. Yep. I felt like I had was at the end of my rope. I felt like I had lived 80 years in 43. I could not see a way out of the hopelessness. I genuinely believed that my children would be better off without me than with a mother who couldn't control what was happening in her mind. And I wrote letters and I made a plan and I started to put that plan into action. And two therapists in one day, by this point, I was also in my husband and I at the time were also in marriage counseling. I told them I was done. I actually went to therapy. I mean, back to type A, went to therapy, told them I was done. And they both looked at me and said, your children will never be okay if you do this. That was the turning point. That was it. And, and I've said, well, fuck. yeah, I guess that means I have to live. Because when you reach that point of, you know, you truly 
believe everyone will be better off without you and you really don't know how you're going to do it, how you're going to survive another day, there's actually this kind of relief that happens when you decide to give up. And then they said, no, you can't do that. And in part because of my history, I'd spent my entire life as a mother trying to break the chains of what had happened to me. And so I knew that I couldn't do that to them, which meant that I had to stay and I had no idea how I was going to do that. I'm still a CEO at this time. Yeah, yeah. But as you can imagine, and I, I would not actually be able to go back and tell you when it started to show, you know, at work that I was not okay. I know that every day I got up and pulled myself up by my bootstraps to the best of my ability and kept trying to show up. But I also have enough memory to know that there were times that I just was not able to show up in the way that I had had been showing up. And by the fall of 2015, I was divorced and resigned my position at the nonprofit. And I was so sick that I did not know who was going to, you know, who Booth was going to be when she woke up the next day, which meant that I couldn't, I was even approached about some other CEO roles. And I knew that I did not have the capacity to make the commitment to show up for another organization. I, I knew I couldn't ask that of myself because I had just at that point been chronically ill for three years. And I didn't have any idea what my capacity was. All of that was followed by a six-month PTSD episode in which I felt like I was being chased by a bear. My nervous system, sometimes I could literally feel my spinal cord tingling. And You were in fight or flight. I was in fight or flight for six months straight. And for me, there was, and, and I, I share this again, particularly because of this audience in your opening remarks, I remember, I think I had taken the kids to school one morning. And I had this thought and it was basically the darkness said to me, we will not let you go until you stop trying to get away. And at that moment, I fully surrendered, you know, with everything I had been through up to that point, I still was trying to kind of meet this standard I had in my head for what I was supposed to look like and how I was supposed to function and be able to show up in the world And that was the moment at which I completely let it all go and was like, all right, so my only job is to try to get enough sleep. If I get enough sleep and I have some energy, I'm going to try to drink some water. If I still have something left after that, I'll try to eat something. And other than that, and showing up for my children, that that was it. Those were the only expectations. Everything that the world tells us about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to look like and how we're supposed to show up in the world, all of those bets were off. And from that point really is where I have rebuilt. So would you say you surrender when you surrendered in that moment? Were you surrendering to yourself, to God, to a higher power? What did it feel like? It felt like surrendering any illusion of control whatsoever. Okay. And so, yes, I think you could say to a higher power, it was basically like, I, I am not in charge of this. Right. (laughs) And 
and I didn't even realize at the time that I had that some part of me was still, you know, fighting. Like I say on my website, battling PTSD. I don't know that we battle PTSD, but that's what I was trying to do. Because that's what you had been doing your whole life is exactly. taking control of situations and leading your way through them and out of them into something exactly. better. Exactly. Persisting despite the obstacles, no matter what, you know, laser focused, just, and that was the only way I knew how to, how to operate. So I just read over the weekend, and this was fascinating to me that, and so much of this trauma occurs in childhood. And I, I'm thankful that there's a recognition of that now, because I know what I've thought of as trauma. There are a lot of other kinds of trauma. Trauma is not always something that happens to you. It could have been what didn't happen. Yeah. And so I read that whenever you have childhood trauma, your DNA is fundamentally changed and you pass that DNA, I guess, damaged, if you will, Mm -hmm. DNA down for seven to eight generations. And I think that's also biblical because it says something in the Bible about, well, you know, you pass the sins of your fathers down for seven generations or something like that. And sins is not the word I'm looking for, but I guess you would, if you think of what we do to ourselves, how we treat ourselves, how we think of ourselves whenever we're supposed to be this perfect work of God, and then we don't think of ourselves that way or treat ourselves that way, then I guess that maybe biblically that's a sin. But I just found that fascinating to think that you are stopping the cycle for your generation from now because you've decided no more. This is not how I'm going to live and I'm going to impact what happens to the generations after me. Yeah. I mean, yes, the data supports that trauma is being passed down through the generations. It is changing genetic expression. And also, like I said earlier, trauma rewires the brain, but so does healing. Oh, I love that. But yeah, trauma is anything that I'm actually, I'm updating one of the talks that I give, which is on trauma-informed workplaces. And it really is anything, anything that feels overwhelming, that exceeds our ability to cope, that is not followed by something reparative, that returns our body to a felt sense of safety. Um, So there's one quote, it's a thing or things that happened either too much, too soon, too fast, or for too long without being attended to by something reparative or healing. And we and, don't we don't take that time for ourselves to even think about repairing and, or healing because we're too. I, I know as a, a busy executive, I have more time now that my son is grown and out on his own, and that's been a challenge because I've had I've had a lot of time on my hands to yeah. think about. <laughs> okay, where do I need to evaluate myself in this process as a leader, as a manager of people, as I guess I'm a role model for a lot of women and a lot of younger women, at least I'm told that, but I've never really taken time to look deep within, like you said, and do the reparative repair and restoration work until almost three years ago when I moved to Florida during the pandemic. And it's like, I didn't even realize what I was doing, but I think I was forcing myself into a situation where I could just be still Mm -hmm. and 
not have to go to a million meetings and dinners and parties and happy hours and events. And if I never put on another ball gown in my life, I'll be perfectly fine with that. So that's why your work, and I've watched you build this company really over the past five years. And I've thought, wow, you know, she took being an attorney and a CEO and turned it into this amazing purpose-driven company. How do you help people? And how do you, how does that translate to, you just mentioned a trauma-informed workplace. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Gosh. Okay. So fundamentally, I think how I help people now is around embracing our humanity as opposed to treating our bodies and minds like they are engines that are only supposed to do our bidding and they don't actually require fuel or tire changes or (laughs) any sort of care and maintenance whatsoever. Because what I have learned, you know, I used to really, truly look at my body as the thing that was supposed to do what I told it to do. And I get really, frankly, irritated when it didn't cooperate. And what I've learned is that our body has an incredible capacity to heal given the right conditions. And what I've also learned is that the ways that we have been conditioned to cope with the world, like pushing through and ignoring basic human needs for like food and movement and connection and rest, you know, and coping with things like alcohol and drugs and shopping and Netflix Most of our coping mechanisms are absolutely counterproductive to what our body actually needs. Learning to heal is not a magic bullet, but it is learning about being still. I know so many people, and I was one of the people who literally could not sit still and play Legos with my son without just being completely agitated. Feeling like you're wasting your time because you should be doing something more productive. Or thinking about all the things that need to be done or, or what you know, devastating email is on its way or, or whatever. A trauma-informed workplace is a workplace that understands the impact that trauma is having on the world. And when you think about the definition of trauma that I gave you, and there's, and there's others, but if it's anything that overwhelms our ability to cope and then not followed by reparation or repair or res- restoration, There's a lot of stuff that falls in that category. You know, there's childhood stuff. There's systemic racism. There's the the violence that we're all witnessing every single day in our communities. Yeah, just constant fear that you walk outside and you might get shot at the mall or at a restaurant. Constant uncertainty. And so the organization is understands and is doing the work to understand the impact that trauma has. And then they're adapting their processes and their procedures and how they function to take into account that pretty much everyone they're coming into contact with has had some trauma. Now, not everyone who experiences trauma is traumatized. So that is a very individual experience based on a lot of different factors, but understanding that there are people within their midst or people that they are serving who are customers that are traumatized and then doing their very best to resist re-traumatizing people. Yeah, by not giving them time to repair or restore or just not acknowledging yeah. that anything is wrong whatsoever. And so when we are, you know, when we're burned out, um, which is, you know, really 
in hindsight, what I believe happened to me is I went into, you know, through all the stages of burnout was in stage four for several years and my body and mind could no longer function the way that I was functioning. And when we are traumatized, our body's doing exactly what it was designed to do. But what happens is all of our resources get shunted to our brainstem to keep our basic organs alive. Adrenaline flushes through our system to you know, make us less sensitive to pain, to increase our heart rate, to do all of these things that are designed to help us escape a threat or freeze or fawn or fight. And when our body does that, our prefrontal cortex is completely offline. And the prefrontal cortex matters because it is where all of our executive functioning lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Problem solving, creativity, emotional regulation, impulse control, executive functioning, you know, all of those things. And so we don't have ex- access to that prefrontal cortex. We're going to make more mistakes. We're going to take risks we wouldn't otherwise take. We are not going to respond to problems with an understanding of complexity and humanity and nuance and texture. But if we never go through the process of releasing that pent up energy, whether it's stress energy or trauma energy, as I said, when our bodies are bathed in those, the stress hormones day after day after day, it's breaking down all of our systems and we get stuck. That stress energy or that trauma energy gets stuck in the body. And I talk to people about it being like, imagine shards of glass that are just bouncing around in your system like a pinball. Right. And we don't know what to do with that energy and it gets stuck and it makes us sick. And so if we understand that process, that our body's doing exactly what it was designed to do, and that there are things that we can do to support the body in returning to that sense of safety and releasing that pent up energy, then the body can return to that rest and restore. When we sleep, it's actually called rest and digest. When we return to rest and digest, our body has incredible capacity to heal itself. But if we don't ever get into rest and digest, because we're we're running and running and running and running uh-huh. and running, not only are we, you know, assaulting our body with hormones it was only intended to be exposed to for short bursts of time, but then we're not able to repair either. So let's talk about burnout because this is something that a lot of my friends seem to have questions about, and particularly with our industry being a highly stressful industry, you mentioned four stages of burnout. What are those four stages and what should we be paying attention to, to make sure that we don't get to stage three or four? Yeah. Well, let me, I want to run through some of the symptoms and then I'll run through the stages. Okay. So burnout symptoms are characterized in about in three different categories, physical, emotional, and behavioral. Physical include feeling tired and drained most of the time, lowered immunity or frequent illness, frequent headaches or muscle pain, changes in appetite, changes in sleep habits. Emotional includes a sense of failure and self-doubt, feeling helpless, trapped and defeated, detachment or feeling alone, a loss of motivation, increasingly cynical and negative outlook and decreased satisfaction and sense of accomplishment. And then behaviorally, withdrawing from responsibilities, isolating yourself from others, using food, drugs, alcohol, or other coping strategies in excess, and taking out your frustration on other people. And in stage one, 
you know, those symptoms are mild. You know, there might be a few warning signs, but they're mild. You could probably ignore them, particularly if you're used to being hyperproductive. By stage two, the symptoms are increasing in frequency and severity, and they're starting to interfere with your life activities and roles. By stage three, the symptoms are worse with relapsing and recurring episodes accompanied by a serious disruption in life activities and roles. And if you're already living with any chronic illnesses, you're likely going to find those harder to manage at that mm-hmm. point. And then by stage four, the symptoms are persistent and severe and they can jeopardize your life either through suicide or through heart attack or other fatal conditions. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how your body will speak to you if you just take a minute to listen. Our body is talking to us all the time. And at first it whispers. But if we keep ignoring the whispers, it will get louder and louder and louder. And eventually it will shut us down. I mean, that's exactly what my body did. It just said no more. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it had to shut down for your own protection. Exactly. So let's talk about loneliness. I, I read... Just, I think last week, somebody sent me an article that said the Surgeon General is tackling loneliness. And the article said that the Surgeon General is laying out a framework to tackle loneliness and mend the social fabric of our nation. And loneliness is something I can relate to, especially since I moved to Florida. I think loneliness can be a tool, but it can also be a really scary place to be. And It's not just senior citizens who are living alone and older. I mean, there are kids who are lonely and they're surrounded by friends. Adolescent teen girls are disproportionately impacted by loneliness and a lot of the things that we're talking about. Is that something that you're hearing more about with your clients or seeing? Is this whole concept of loneliness, particularly as we come out of the pandemic and more people are working remotely? I see it on a macro level, and then I see it from my own experience. So there's a difference between being alone and lonely. Yeah. And to your point, you mentioned, you know, kids being in in a space with other people, but still feeling lonely. We are biologically wired to require connection, but connection, true connection only happens when we feel like we can be ourselves without fear of retribution. Mm-hmm. And that's not often. <laughs> and there aren't a lot of places where we can do that. And that is one of the things that I see that people, people who choose to work with me, um, whether that's through coaching or retreats, you know, either one-on-one or group coaching, is that I am very intentional about giving people permission to show up as who they are and to tell me the truth. You know, when I ask somebody how they are, I expect for them to tell me whatever they want to tell me. I'm not forcing them to disclose things they don't want to disclose, but they have permission to tell me the truth. And we desperately need that. Uh, Loneliness and lack of a sense of safe social support only exacerbates burnout and mental illness. I firmly believe that one of the things that that kept me on a descending journey was that I felt 100% alone. I didn't know who I could trust. I didn't know who I could tell. There was no one in my life who knew, except maybe my therapist, 
who knew the full breadth and extent of what I was going through and how close I was to, to ending it because I didn't tell anybody. And that sense that we're the only ones who are suffering and that everyone else, and I think social media can contribute to this, that we're the only ones suffering and somehow everybody else has life figured out and has it together can definitely compound the not only burnout, but also the risk of mental illness. When we have, I've mentioned a lot, you know, trauma without restoration and repair, a sense of safe community is one of the most powerful things that we can offer to each other. It can be really intimidating if we know somebody that we care about is struggling. We feel like we're supposed to know how to fix it. We're not supposed to know how to fix it. All we have to do is show up and be an empathetic, non-judgmental witness mm-hmm. and say, I see you having the human experience. I see that you're suffering. I see that you're in pain. I am so sorry. I don't know what to do, but I'm here. That's really powerful. It is incredibly powerful. And it can totally change the, the course of someone's day, someone's life, if they have people that they feel like they can tell the truth to, who will not judge them, who won't try to fix them or make them a project, but will just say, this is hard and I see you. Yeah. And you're not alone. It is hard. It is hard. And for those of us who are leaders and doers, typically our first line of defense is want to try to fix it, to do something, to take some sort of action or to help put a plan in place or pay for treatment or whatever. I've done, I've done a lot of those. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as we wrap up here, I want to ask you, or if there's anybody out there listening, who's feeling like they're at the end of their rope and whether that be burnout, stress, anxiety, depression, and you're feeling like life isn't worth living anymore. You're in that place where Booth was. What do you do first, Booth? What do you tell whoever may be listening who may be in the shoes that you were back in 2012, 2013? You are worth saving and you deserve to be here and people need you and love you. And it won't always feel this way. And you have to decide to stay or if it's burnout and you haven't gotten to the point of suicidal ideation or suicidal planning you have to decide that you are worth saving and make that the line in the sand. You don't even know have to know how. You know, I spent, when I decided to stay for my children, that was the flag for a long time. I didn't know how I was going to do that. And there were days that I even was like, you know, when I would feel the most overwhelmed and like, I wasn't sure I could survive it. I would say you can always die tomorrow, but not today, but not not today, today. not today. And I, I couldn't tell you how many days I got through just with that, you know, seven years out of seven or almost eight years out of that journey. I now can't imagine having left them. I can't imagine not having been here for their lives. I can't imagine taking their mother from them. But but for those first few years, it was put one foot in front of the other. And I also have an appreciation for life that is that I'm not just here for them. 
But for a while, you know, that was the flag. It was like, you have to stay here. You have to stay here for them. You don't have to know how to do it beyond this five minutes. Right. There's a lot of freedom in that. There is. And asking for help is incredibly brave. Yeah. And you do have a podcast, speaking of freedom, called Freedom from Empty. So tell us a little bit about how that got started and you know where we can listen to it. Well, that actually got started because of Chris Hill. Okay. Who owns Pod. Yes. We had a conversation. He kind of knew, I had known for a while, when I started to come out of the darkest part of the journey, I really felt like I wanted to use this experience to help other people. I mean, back to loneliness. I wanted other people to know that they were not alone. I wanted to try to help destigmatize mental illness. I wanted to give people a place to tell the truth. And so Chris and I had had some conversations around that. And so when he started Humble Pod, he reached out to me and we put Freedom from Empty together. And I continue, I haven't recorded in a while, but I'm working on bringing it back. But I've got at least 80 episodes sitting on my website or at Freedom from Empty on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, all the places. But I use that platform to continue to tell the story. And it's in a lot of ways, it's real time. It's okay. So I had this experience and I learned this lesson and I want to share this with you. And the truth is that the healing journey is very much a, I like to think about it as an upward spiral. We come around to similar patterns or, or lessons that we need to learn maybe more than once, or maybe just with new dimension and understanding and tools and resources that we didn't have the first time we were exposed to them. And I think so many of us are teaching things we needed to learn. Yeah. (laughs) And so I try to take my day-to-day life experience and the journey that I've been on to restoring my well-being. I Actually, my mental illness was declared in remission in 2019. I weaned off of my antidepressant in 2020. I do still take medication to help me sleep, and that may always be the case. But the tools and the resources and the the questions that I've asked and the lessons that I've learned, and I share that and put it into the podcast. Well, I just want to thank you for the work, and I love following your blog. You make me feel like I'm not alone in this journey, and I think we have a lot of similar qualities that make us want to just be the super women that we know we really aren't. (laughs) And maybe there's something of coming of age where you just realize that it's just not worth it anymore and that we're all human and that we need to embrace the human experience and be a little less rigid or a lot less rigid. (laughs) Yeah. So you can find Booth at theboothandrewscompany.com. And what about on social media, uh, the dreaded social media? Where can we find you? <laughs> I am active on Instagram at the Booth Andrews and also on Facebook at the Booth Andrews. And you can go to my website, boothandrews.com, subscribe to my newsletter. I also have a new platform called Phone Booth where people can subscribe and I send a weekly prompt, a gentle reminder to take care of yourself. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, it's been um, free in beta for the last few months. I am about to put a subscription model around it, but it's just a a little reminder to breathe and to be gentle with your human self. 
Well, it's it's so wonderful to see you taking all your CEO skills and putting them to work for such a great purpose. And thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. I appreciate it. Of course. And to our listeners, don't forget to follow the Misinterpreted Podcast on social media. We'll respond to your questions and comments. So please post them using the hashtag, hashtag misinterpreted, and that's MS interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. You can also follow me on Twitter at KD Fletcher. And never want to go without thanking our sound engineer, Chris Hill, and his assistant, Ashley, with Knoxville-based HumblePod. And they can be found at HumblePod.com. Take care of yourselves and each other. Until next time. Thanks for joining us on Ms. Interpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 